O Sacrament, most holy, O Sacrament divine. Praise and all thanksgiving be everyone. Spiritual communion, I wish, my Lord, to receive you with the purity, humility, and devotion with which your most holy mother received you, with the spirit and fervor of the saints. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. With your permission, Lord Jesus Christ, truly present here on the altar, we begin this meditation by making a firm act of faith in your real presence as we gaze upon you there in the monstrance hidden in the sacred hosts. We make an act of faith that you are truly present. As we look upon you, we know that you too are looking upon us as you have from all eternity. And we begin this time of meditation with one of those short phrases that we can find in one of the works of Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, a short phrase that nevertheless encapsulates something so fundamental. He said, only through the Son could we learn what a Father truly is. Only through the Son can we learn this. Because he is the only Son of God. Jesus is the only Son of God. But through baptism, he has made us adopted sons and daughters. But only through the Son can we learn this truth. We can perhaps put an emphasis on this word. Only through the Son can we learn. Can we learn? Can we understand or learn this truth? In some way, other religions are much simpler. Like Islam is quite simple. You just have to say yes, you just have to acknowledge Islam, and that's it, you're saved, your you know, salvation is done. As Scott Hahn says, uh, why do you need three persons just to save one? You, know, you have Father, Son, Holy Spirit, just to save me, one person, why do you need all three? And the whole gamut of things that you have to do to be a Christian. Of course, we want salvation, but why do we need to go through all this trouble? Well, because ultimately, God, in the fullness of time, has wanted to reveal this essential truth to us about himself. And that is that he is not alone, he's not kind of in isolation, but rather he is a kind of a covenant between Father, Son, and drawn together, as we know, by the Holy Spirit. And this truth is so essential to us that it leads us not simply to know about God, but to be invited to share in His community, into His covenant. And, of course, Jesus is the natural Son of God, but He has invited us to share in this sonship, not by being natural sons, only He is the only begotten Son of God, but we can become adopted sons adopted sonship 
and uh, this truth is essential and and is a truth that we uh, certainly as priests that we have to come to contemplate more and more the truth of our divine filiation the truth of God that God is a father that we are drawn together by the Holy Spirit and it, it is something that we are invited to contemplate how? by reading about it by finding it appear in scripture ultimately by forming our mind our heart our conscience our vision of, of the world so that this fundamental truth is always on our radar it's, it's the prism through which we understand and see everything that happens, including the pandemic, including tragedies that might befall us, and of course, good things and happy things that we see in our life. And it has to, it has to you could say, impregnate everything that we do through this lens of fatherhood. That's why Cardinal Ratzinger said that only through the Son can we learn, can we learn this. And uh, you could say the end product is that, is that we see and learn that we are sons of God. But the means to being sons of God is that we learn it. And we should see it as a, you could say, as a vast library that we'll never come to finish learning. I remember when I was in Rome, um, I was studying a, a 12th century um, ecclesiastical author who was named Hugh of St. Victor, and then came Richard of St. Victor and Adam of St. Victor, and he was the kind of a predecessor to St. Thomas Aquinas. He had an important influence of, on St. Thomas Aquinas, and one of the places I would go to get his writings was the famous uh, Migne. The Migne is a series of I believe there are 177 volumes, all in Latin, of all the fathers of the church and many, many, many ecclesiastical light writers. And I remember in the, in the library where I used to go, I would see this rather, well, this, this you know, intimidating series of volumes that I, I know some had, had read pretty well all the volumes. Some of the great theologians had read them all. It was quite intimidating, but it gave you really the impression that you had to keep learning. You have to keep investigating. And some of the modern day authors uh, would, would constantly quote from the Migne. It was always quoted as PL, PL, Patrologia Latina, or PG, Patrologia Greca. You know? And it's a, it's a stunning work. It was written in the 19th century, and they had collected the best examples of, of patristic thought and, or, or writings. You know, all of St. Augustine is in there and so forth. But, uh, but it really gave you the sense, I, I still have to go deeper. I still have to learn. Eh? And uh, because that is the means for me to embed in my life the truth of my divine filiation. Eh? And we can ask ourselves now, am I really conscious of this need to learn ever more, ever deeper, these fundamental truths? Eh? Sometimes the way we learn something, the fundamental truths of our faith, is simply having to explain them, either from the pulpit or in catechetical classes of some kind. 
Sometimes even uh, to younger children, we have to explain fundamental truths that are deep truths, but that we have to use or find a simple vocabulary or our moral truths that some people, at least, at least on, on one level, reject. But we have to use images and, and ways of explaining that really express our deeper understanding of it. And uh, very often we have to explain this to people who only have a thin veneer of religiosity. And they haven't really investigated this deeply. They expect us to explain these things. But the danger is that we too as priests might end up that same thin veneer if we don't constantly take care of our formation. I mean, ultimately that's why you're here today to, for fraternity, to pray to our Lord. But, but the underlying, you could say, purpose of it is that we never get used to taking care of our ongoing formation. I saw the other day a meme on, on one of these uh, church billboards outside that said, respect your, your parents. They passed high school without Google. They passed high school without Google, you know. And, uh, and maybe, well, we have heard, you know, stories uh, of, of people sort of staying on a, on a, you could say that, on a kind of Google you know, just Google it and you'll get an answer. And we can end up kind of cutting and pasting answers without really, really understanding them. Indeed, we have heard rather sad stories about fatherlessness and how severely it affects young people. It seems to leave a life, lifelong mark on many of them. Maybe the mark it can be a kind of an anger, a kind of a bitterness, a sense that they are not worthy when their own father neglected them or didn't take care of them or they have a sense somehow that they can't do anything right that they're not truly lovable for their own sake I saw a movie recently about a young kid growing up in the 1970s and how his father was always absent and he was, he was like he was a talk show host somewhere and, and the boy never saw his father but he would try to look for him on the radio or hear him try to hear him on the radio but the father was he just never saw him he never came home and he, he basically abandoned the family and he was like a drunk and uh, um, but at least he had an uncle that would take care of him and uh, and mentor him and give him good advice right and uh, well, at the end of the movie there's a scene where he tries to reconnect with his father and he goes to his father, who's living with another lady now, and uh, and he tries to connect, but the father is just, you know, being very difficult, and he ends up beating the woman that he's living with, and so he decides uh, he decides to call the police, and, and they arrest uh, the father, and then so there's a there's a quite a touching scene where he's on his way home, and the cruiser, one of the police cruisers stops and says, "I can take you to the train station," and uh, and so he gets in and, and the police officer says to him, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry about your father. You know, I'm sorry that this is... And he's, he's very negative and he says, bah, he's not my father, he's not my father. You know, shaking his head. And, and the police officer says, you know, we don't get to pick. We don't get to pick. And uh, still the other is, is still not convinced, right? And, and it's true... In some ways, for us too, we we don't obviously nobody gets to pick their father, and, and we haven't gotten to pick our father, but we have been given the gift of God the Father. Hmm? 
And he did give us an intellect, he gave us a conscience, he gave us talents, all of which we are invited to develop, to form, lest they be atrophied. You know, when you, you atrophy a muscle because it, do, it just doesn't get used to certain people because they can't walk or something, their, their, their legs or their limbs or their muscles just get atrophied. They're unable to lift serious weights. And, um, and that can happen to us if, if you could say, in our homily preparation, in any talk we prepare, we're just relying on, on videos that we find online, or as we say, just Google it and you'll figure it out. As though, not obviously nothing wrong with Google and as such, but, but in other words, could it happen that I not really undertake serious reflection on the gospel, serious reflection on the truths of my faith, this personal intense reflection that I don't simply leave for others, but I, I take what others have learned and that I, I somehow really make them own, my own. This is part of the formation that we have to, you could say, take responsibility for. And you could say that, like one of the aspects of theology that we study is the theology of grace. And you know, what is ultimately, what is grace? It's obviously a question of the fathers of the church we're very interested in right from the start to study how grace works and how it's defined and the different types of grace and uh, the freedom or the, or, or the gratuitousness of grace. But at the same time, one could give a, a fairly easy answer to what is grace. Grace is simply the life of God in human beings. In my life, your life. And that means that that grace... That, that, that intrinsic nature of God God in our life is present at every stage in my life from infancy to adolescence to adulthood to, to older age when I get older that is what's perhaps in the future and it acts at the same time in our daily life in our free decisions in our correspondence grace is there this invisible grace, which is not like a liquid, it's, it's God acting in our soul, in our con conscience, in our decisions. And you could say, you know, I was thinking of this, you could say that grace, or God at the same time, it's, it's almost analogous, but God is present in a kind of historical narrative throughout our life. You know, if we were to see one of those old Super 8 movies of our life, we would see all the external events of our life. We would see our, our, you know, our birth, maybe. We would see our first day at school, when we learned to ride a bike. We would see our first communion, those ski trips, those excursions, those birthday parties, uh, school trips, the sleepovers we might have had as children, the graduations. And these movies would maybe be a bit grainy, but you could make them out. You could see, you know, the joy. Maybe generally you don't film sad moments, but maybe you'd get in there a funeral or two. And but underneath all these events that we could see on a Super 8 movie, there would be another historical narrative that you could only see with faith, through the lens of faith, 
Imagine if you had a special camera that could see this, like a kind of an x-ray camera, where you'd see your creation, your predestination in Christ, your divine call, your divine vocation, your justification, your gradual purification from sin, the days in which you are forgiven in confession, and your, then your eschatological communion with the Blessed Trinity in glory, that is, future events. Some of them are in the past, some of them are now, some of them are still to come. Where you come to see God face to face. All that is part of divine grace in our life. It would, if we were to see that kind of movie, it would definitely win an Oscar. It would definitely, I don't know, win something on Netflix if we were to see a series like that. I think, I think. Well, maybe people want, uh, you know, superheroes, but... Uh... And so, we understand that grace, in fact, involves a deep, transformative insertion of God's life within created reality. Indeed, in every aspect of created reality. In every move you make, in every organ, in every faculty of human life. And uh, you could say that, that human, humans, for humans, divine grace, God's own life, is God's own life in humanity. It takes on that narrative a life of its own, a dynamic, a richness, a color, a movement, a sound, like a symphony, like a beautiful symphony. Eh? And, uh, and this is what we have to come to know progressively through ongoing, constant formation, so that we can see that symphony and, and give thanks to God for this beautiful symphony. Eh? If you've gone to, to a great opera or, or a great... Uh, Recital, you know, you know how beautiful it is to, to hear a great, a great symphony playing, and you can see the flute and the and the trumpet and the violins and the oboes. It's just, and then you know the the conductor brings it all together, and just you, you're enraptured when you hear a Handel piece or a Beethoven piece or a Bach, you know, the Mass in D minor. It's just amazing, and. Of course, in us humans, grace also becomes incarnate. It was a beautiful um, gospel passage yesterday, which was Monday in the first day of ordinary time, meaning the first passage of ordinary time, the first passage of the gospel, like the introductory passage for the whole year. Day one, we're told from Mark 1, that after John had been arrested, Jesus went into Galilee. And there he proclaimed the good news from God. The time has come, he said, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. It's an interesting expression. The time has come. It's sometimes, you know, what does this mean? This mean the time has come, uh, sometimes described as the fullness of time, uh, uh, the time is fulfilled and the, the, the kingdom of God is near. What is he saying here? The time has come. What does he mean by that? Well, we know that something has been brought to completion now. The time has come. So, okay, it's time. Like we would say, if you were in a home, the, you know, your mother would say, okay, it's time for supper. Let's go. It, the time has come. So everybody stops what they're doing and they go for supper. 
and well partly because they're hungry but oh it's the time for supper you have to go on time but here he's saying time has come to a completion what is that well it was everything in the Old Testament everything that the Old Testament has spoken of from Abraham to the 12 tribes of Israel to the law of Moses to the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos and all the prophets right? they were all readying the people for this time this what was then a future event as now all the people are formed and ready now for this moment when Jesus appeared there publicly that's why there was such a deep expectation because they had been formed all those years all those centuries for something to happen and uh, they were those people were the opposite of indifferent they were like like when there's a papal conclave everybody is with expectation you know who's the next pope right? well here he is and of course some some people thought well it's John the Baptist no 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 it's not John the Baptist I'm not even worthy to be un, to untie his sandal strap you know like some people think it's going to be such and such a cardinal. No, 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 no. Yes, no, no. He's too old. And, right? And uh, you can say that Jesus gathered up in his person everything that Israel was all about. And this is why his presence is so compelling. It's of such paramount importance. And then he says, of course, repent, believe in the gospel. The good news is him. And then he, we know he chooses the disciples. And what were the disciples doing? St. Mark says that they were mending their nets. They were mending their nets. It's a beautiful expression, right? We could ask ourselves now that question. How am I mending the nets of my priesthood, of my vocation, so that the souls don't escape and get lost? I mean, that the purpose of mending a net is so that fish don't get out, don't squeeze out of those holes. You know, how am I mending the nets in a world that has been lost to secularization, to indifference, to cancel culture, to Google or Twitter mobs, or indifference or lack of knowledge or lack of formation? And the only way really to mend my nets for me is to be well formed. That is, I take very seriously my time of study every week by reading by growing in culture, by reading good books, opening up horizons, books in scripture, books in dogmatic theology, books in moral theology, in ethics, uh, in uh, canonical formation. When somebody asks me a question, I can't say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. We have to say, actually I don't know, but you know what, I will find out. I will find out. I'll get back to you. Because that's a good question. And it's a worthy question. We can't leave gaping holes in our moral formation, in our canonical formation, because the fish will get out of there. Even in ecclesiastical formation, uh, I can't say I don't know. You know, the other day, I, I have to recognize, somebody came to see me, and we talked about many things, but he said, you know, Father... Father, the other day I was reading St. John and I find St. John harder to understand and, and, uh, and he asked me about chapter 8, the passage of the adulterous woman, and he said, well, some people say that this was, I read this in the notes, he said that this was added later and this was not an authentic passage and it was added many centuries later 
and uh, what do you think? <sighs> so I had to have an answer for that, you know. Uh, was it added later? Was it, uh, you know, that the fact that Jesus should forgive this adulterous woman was, uh, was omitted because it seemed, it seemed too uh, lenient towards adultery or something like that? And, um, you know, and then I, I told him, honestly, I, I don't have an immediate question for you. I know that, that there was some controversy about this passage. Some say that it was absent from the earliest manuscripts and, and uh, that you know, not until the 4th century was it present, but I, I have to, you know, all I could say was, I'll, I'll look into it, you know, and, uh, and uh, but I felt, I felt rather ashamed that I didn't at least have a good uh, answer, at least a minimal answer for him there, but what can you do, you know, maybe, you know, if I had studied more carefully the St. John course, I would have had a better answer, but, uh, at least we can say that. I can, I can study this question and uh, you know, we can underline that it's still an inspired passage. Because what, what ultimately is an unformed person? An unformed person is someone who does not know how to escape the narrow circle of their own organic and material needs, uh, who can't rise above the, the pressures of his own instincts uh, and, and open themselves to others. Someone who, who in the end can be kind of clumsy and even in social life, uh, who is too maybe uncultured uh, to, to take part in the common world of other men and women. You know, you could say that unformed people are characterized by, it's not just that they don't know. It's understandable, you don't know certain things. We can't be encyclopedias, but... A really unformed person, he just lacks interest in everything that is not their own. And this inability to, to assimilate anything beyond the radius of their own immediate interest. And so, for us, formation really means the progressive colonization of ourselves, to colonize ourselves. Our faculties, our resources are colonized. Our mind, our intellect, our spiritual sensitivity, our culture. We have to colonize all that. Think of the European colonizers, people like Christopher Columbus. You know, they, they came here to a new world. The place was inhabited. There were no highways. Everything was undeveloped. It was just like, I don't know if you could say it was jungle, but I mean, you know, they came in here and they built the place up. Obviously, there was no knowledge of Christ, and they sought to colonize this land. On the one hand, to acquire its riches, but also to develop it, to build roads and bridges and in an area that was pretty savage. You know, you, know, you could see that the, their early maps show that they had a basic knowledge of the territory. They could see the St. Lawrence River and stuff, and, and they knew there was a big river, the Gulf of St. Lawrence... Um, and then you know the large island called the Anticosti Island, and then Lille d'Orléans. They could see that, and of course the first maps are quite vague and general. But then bit by bit they they get more and more precise contours, and and they come to have a better knowledge of the territory, and a more accurate portrayal of the land that they were coming to, and all its possibilities. They made it. Inhabitable, like they're able to inhabit this. 
So for us, let us ask our Blessed Mother now, our hope, seat of wisdom, to give us true knowledge, which is not just the accumulation of information, a series of concepts or ideas. We're not supposed to be walking encyclopedias, but a formation that will truly personally enrich us uh, kind of like filling up our bank account, right? Uh, we get richer, we have more access to those riches. We'll see formation as a way of being. And uh, there are many priests who have a good catechetical knowledge, uh, and they could theoretically pass an exam, but, but right, can I merely make this um, agreeable, uh, accessible for others of different uh, levels? We have to form our own conscience in the way we act freely. So let us ask our Blessed Mother of this. And for us, formation will also truly mean a moment of conversion. Let's ask our Mother for this, who knew her son so well, as she observed him and knew every move and, and every, every tone of his voice more than anyone. As Cardinal Ratzinger said, let your gaze penetrate our hearts and indicate the direction of our lives that our lives must take. On the day of Pentecost, you stirred the hearts of those who, on Good Friday, clamored for your, your death and you brought them to conversion. In this way, you gave hope to all. Grant us ever anew the grace of conversion. And a conversion that will bring about us a richness of formation so that we can be really souls that can serve the church always taking the hand of our Blessed Mother. I thank you my God for the good resolutions, affections and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you how to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.